When it comes to murky waters, it doesn't get much murkier than Brooklyn's Gowanus Canal. In fact, the waterway was once dubbed Lavender Lake for its purplish chemical hue. The Environmental Protection Agency designated the 1.8-mile canal a Superfund site in March 2010. Good morning, I'm George Podarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The Gowanus Canal has a long history of economic ups and downs and environmental pollution, but a lot of people see more than just a carcinogenic cesspool when they look at the waterway. The Gowanus Canal Conservancy was formed in 2006 to help shape a broader future for the canal and the neighborhood surrounding it. With us now in the studio is the Conservancy's chairman, Andy Simons. Andy, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Hans Hesselein. He is the director of special projects for the Conservancy. Hans, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you for having me. Andy, let's start with you. Describe the Gowanus Canal and the neighborhood surrounding it for those listening now who are unfamiliar with the area. Well, the Gowanus Canal is a a industrial canal that was built in the uh, mid-1800s. Uh, it was a significant port, uh, particularly during the activity of the uh, Erie Canal. It was really kind of one of the endpoints of the Erie Canal. And it became an early industrial engine for the development of Brooklyn as a whole. Residential neighborhoods built up around it, but really the lowland area has always stayed uh, a mixture of industrial and residential areas. Really, it was the creation of the Gowanus Expressway in the 50s that made the canal uh, less relevant as a port area. And since then, the the Gowanus lowland area and its canal uh, have you know, have become less and less relevant for industrial use and and have really had little direction, I think, as a, as a neighborhood of what, of what it should be done. And, and because of that, the canal's health itself was, was um, ignored and the kind of historic environmental issues that, you know, were there day one when they built the canal uh, have continued to be there. Hans, I grew up hearing that if you fall into the Gowanus Canal, you will simply die. <laughs> there are other rumors, too, that you'll contract gonorrhea and other sexually transmitted diseases, but I, I don't know that any of those are actually substantiated rumors. It's certainly disgusting um, because it's full of human sewage, but I imagine that most of the pathogens in our sewage, when they come in contact with the salt water, since it's connected to the harbor, um, they probably don't live very long. Um, that doesn't make it a, a pleasant place to spend your t time, and it is full of toxins, although I think most of those are bound up in the sediments at the bottom of the canal. Um, I, I have heard EPA representatives say that, you know, you could spend three hours a day for 21 days a year in the Gowanus Canal, and your risk of contracting some illness as a result of that would not be substantial enough to prevent you legally from entering the canal. So for whatever that is worth or whatever it means. Um, it's not a clear and present danger, I would say, to human health, but um, it is. it can be a disgusting place. How did the waterway get this polluted? Well, for starters, um, it used to be a creek, which was fed by natural streams, which, you know, as they traveled down the hillsides in Park Slope and Carroll Gardens would become naturally oxygenated by the plants and just the movement of the water. Uh, as soon as they canalized it uh, and sort of boarded up the sides and, and you know, urbanized the areas around it and separated it from its natural stream regeneration um, and flushing, it became a sort of a stagnant body of water. 
And so since the water is only moved by tidal action, not by natural forces anymore, not by uh, stream re replenishment, it became um, basically stagnant and Im immediately began to smell as soon as it was became a canal. And so they built a flushing tunnel. Can you describe the smell? What's the smell? Well, the smell tends to happen mostly at low tide when you have exposed sediment, but also it happens after there have been significant rain events. And it can smell everything from uh, motor oil, so, you know, an, an oily smell to it. It also can have a, a sewage smell to it. You know, definitely it has a industrial smell to it. <laughs> I, I think part of what you have to keep in mind is that when the canal was built during the Industrial Revolution, you know, there wasn't an EPA. There wasn't such things as the Clean Water Act. And we were a different society that, that viewed industrialization and how to deal with that waste in a completely different way. The Environmental Protection Agency has now declared the Gowanus a Superfund site, right? Yep. Is that a good or a bad thing in your view? I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think what people in the community and in the city as a whole need to remember is that just by declaring it a Superfund site does not mean that it will be cleaned up in a quick way. Uh, and that the scoping, the actual area that they work on, uh, is a fairly narrow scope at the moment, although it may change, which is primarily the sediment within the canal itself. And there are other historic contaminants, such as the upland areas. And like all other parts of the city, we have combined sewer overflows into the canal. But unlike other parts of the city, as Hans said, we're a dead-ended body of water. We're not the East River, which is tidal, or the Hudson River, which has a significant current. You know, we are a dead-ended, one-and-a-half-mile-long body of water. They're estimating a decade for this cleanup right now, right? Yeah, that's an ambitious estimate, I think, and 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 they've they've admitted that. Um, they've kind of begun pushing the estimates back maybe around 12 years, but I know some people wouldn't be surprised if it lasted, the whole thing lasted 15. It's an incredibly complicated project. I mean, just the logistics, you know, figuring out, how are you going to remove, you know, however many feet of sediment from the bottom of this canal without then polluting the Hudson River estuary? Um, where are you going to move it to? How much is that going to cost? Are you going to raise all the bridges? Are you going to pipe it out, you know, barge it, whatever? And I think it's one of the more complicated projects that the EPAs decide to undertake. The Bloomberg administration, from what I understand, was against this designation because the administration feared that it would drive developers away. Now, my understanding is some developers have pulled out of plans to build around the Gowanus because of the designation, right? Well, you know, we, we did go through a, or we are in an economic downturn where the housing market did significantly drop. So it's hard to say whether you know, they happened concurrently. So was the designation what caused those developers to change their minds, or was it their their uh, balance sheets that caused them to, to pull out also? But yes, the the two developments that were planned that were being actively talked about have now stopped. What's the primary mission of your organization? I think the primary mission in, in kind of plain talk is that we want to be a proactive voice for the community for what the Gowanus Canal and its surrounding areas should be. We don't want the EPA or city planners or developers to come in and say what it should be without the neighborhood having a significant say. And we want to be, like I said, proactive. We want to be part of the solution, and we want to be within the room in the discussions. We don't want to be outside the door with 
you know, signs and picketing and saying no, no, no. And, uh, we see a solution. We want to be a part of it. And, and we're focused on a lot of what we're focused on are, are environmental issues. So, and and the geographic areas, the entire watershed, which combines most of Park Slope and Carroll Gardens, a little bit of Red Hook, and some other neighborhoods, a little bit of Sunset Park. But we're focused on cleaning the canal, or at least supporting the EPA's effort to clean the canal, and also to try and prevent the future uh, pollution from occurring, which is primarily from combined sewer overflows. And so we have to address our watershed by absorbing stormwater and reducing the amount that enters the sewers and overwhelms them and then mixes, dumps the mixed sewage into the canal. So that's something that we're really interested in. And also, you know, trying to provide public access to the canal, which is largely inaccessible because most of the property that that borders it directly is owned by, you know, private companies or landowners. And so you're only really able to get to it at at a couple of points, you know, where a street crosses or dead ends the canal itself. Can I ask why you would want to get to it at this point? <laughs> well, visually, it's it's quite a beautiful area, industrial beautiful, but it's still beautiful. It's one of the few areas in New York City where you get a large lowland vista view. The buildings there tend to only be one or two stories tall, and you have height height differences, so you can be you know, up a slope and actually look across this valley, this industrialized valley, and the canal itself has some beautiful sight lines that uh, are uh, definitely worth seeing. Hans, I've read that the Conservancy has taken several steps to start the cleanup of the Gowanus, including putting in floating gardens. Is that right? Yeah. um, That was one of our fun... We have this really um, interesting volunteer program called our Clean and Green Volunteer Program, where... We have sort of a core group of designers and sort of community activists who are really interested in developing fun, creative projects that um, can be implemented using our community members. And so we have once a month a volunteer day where we assemble groups of people to get together and, and work on the canal. To And we've done things like install gardens or uh, on the street ends that were kind of abandoned and sort of filled with trash. And we have launched some floating gardens in the canal too, which was a really fun experiment. We have done very practical things like building birdhouses and bathhouses, having volunteer groups, uh, school groups, church, synagogue groups come down with us and pick up litter get rid of evasive plants, put in more native planting, uh, remediation of soil. We have a, a nursery in the canal that we have to uh, heal our plants in before we go out and plant them. We have a composting program that we've started. Uh, you know, we even have a demonstration uh, vegetable garden. All right. Andy, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. Hans, thank you. Thank you very much. Andy Simons is the chairman of the Gowanus Canal Conservancy. Hans Hesselein is the Conservancy's director of special projects. You'll find the organization online at GowanusCanalConservancy.org. Another group with its eyes set on the future of the Gowanus Canal is Gowanus by Design. The advocacy group recently announced the winners of an ideas competition for the Gowanus. The founders are with us now on the phone. Anthony Dean, good morning. Good morning. And David Briggs, good morning to you. Good morning, George. Anthony, let's start with you. What do you see when you look out on the Gowanus? I see a really interesting, diverse, creative community. Um, This is a community that's filled with artists, with painters, with sculptors, with musicians, with architects, actors, other kinds of creative people who have kind of insinuated themselves into 
the residual spaces of, of this old manufacturing district uh, in a very similar manner to the way that Soho uh, started out years ago and Chelsea in Manhattan. So we have a lot of new, interesting, creative organizations. We have a lot of new startup uh, and um, incubator businesses that are evolving naturally uh, in the, the post-industrial spaces. Dave, you want to talk more about that? Just taking a step back, I mean, to really understand the Gowanus, you have to sort of understand the urban geography around here. The, it, it, it's a watershed area where the Gowanus is canal is at a low point uh, between two sort of classic Brooklyn neighborhoods, Carroll Gardens and Park Slope. And so because of just that uh, topography, a lot of water uh, runs off in, in heavy storm events like the one we had this past weekend into the canal, taking a lot of the surface pollutants that are on the streets and uh, surrounding areas into the canal. And those are referred to as uh, combined sewer overflows. That is done a lot to damage uh, the quality of the water as well as the subsurface contamination that continually um, occurring due to the manufacturing history of the neighborhood. So, you know, the city has been trying to uh, develop the area to uh, accommodate more housing um, for the planned million people that are going to be moving to New York City in the next 20 years, which is a good thing. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we are uh, pro-development, but they don't really have a cohesive plan in terms of how to clean up the contamination. I think that's really what goes back to why we started Gowanus by Design, to sort of start asking some uh, broad questions about how does one go about remediating an urban area um, in a a very cohesive, um, intelligent way that does not simply um, displace the contaminants and make them someone else's problem, but does it in a way that Uh, hopefully becomes a model for 21st century development because we believe this is sort of the beginning of planning efforts uh, that will be happening quite a bit in the next 100 years in many cities as a lot of pressure is applied to former brownfield sites or current brownfield sites to develop them for uh, residential or perhaps mixed use. How are you going about making sure your voice is heard in the cleanup process? The Environmental Protection Agency says they're going to spend 10 years. A lot of people say it's going to take a lot more than 10 years to clean up the Gowanus, but how are you going to ensure that your voice is heard in all of this? Part of it through advocacy and part of it through you know our skills as architects to uh, organize design competitions that address uh, some of these broad questions that we've identified. Uh, we just completed our first design competition which we titled uh, the Kiwanis Low-Line Connections. It was an open invitation competition to anybody uh, for ideas about how one connects to the canal. And we received 180 uh, entries. Wow. And uh, those were selected, and we're having a, a gallery opening in a, in a couple of weeks here in Brooklyn that will showcase the winners plus some other selected entries. And we, we were hoping through a series of these competitions that continually build on, on the research done in the prior competitions that we can establish, uh, create a database of information, uh, both through uh, design research and scientific research, plus go to the city and our government officials and say, you know, here is a, a perspective or some ideas on how to deal with the problems here um, at the canal. It's a very complex issue, which is why we're the competitions are created around single issues, but together we're hoping that uh, the, the accumulated wisdom and 
information that comes out of these competitions will start a dialogue with the civic leaders around here in terms of um, what can be done and how do we properly remediate and occupy this uh, contaminated zone. Now, you said that the contest was dubbed Gowanus Low-Line Connections. Now, Low-Line was a play on the High Line, right, the popular elevated park in Manhattan? Yes, very much so. Uh, we, you know, we really liked what happened over there. Um, early on, Anthony and I met with Josh David, who was one of the founders of the Friends of the High Line. And, uh, you know, their work has really inspired us in terms of what can happen um, to um, either sort of an object in the city, such as an elevated railway line or an area in the city, uh, such as the Gowanus neighborhood that has uh, fallen into disuse, has been, is a, an eyesore, is something that people don't really have any connection to and, and turn it around. They had an easier problem over there. It was a very sort of simple problem. It was, a, you know, there was an elevated uh, railway that needed to be repaired and made accessible. I wish the Gowanus Canal problem was that easy, but with all these contaminants that are, you know, uh, outcomes of the gas manufacturing plants uh, processes that have happened over the last, or during the past century, uh, we have a very, very difficult problem in terms of how, do you, how does one go about remediating, um, if there should be remediation, while trying to develop the area at the same time. Anthony, talk to me about some of these winning designs. First of all, I love the titles, BYOB, Bring Your Own Bridges. Domestic laundry is another one of them. <laughs> the applicants definitely played off, uh, not only the, some of them played off the name Low Line, some of them played off Connections, and, and some of them were uh, wholly and totally original in their thinking. Um, the, the two that you bring up, BYOB and uh, Domestic Laundry, really were two, two of the better ones. BYOB being by a local team that lives right here in the neighborhood, right here in Brooklyn. And um, they really, really identified with this issue that we have um, and why we use the, the term connections in the name, which is that, you know, the Cat Canal, while it's a feature of both neighborhoods, of both Carroll Gardens and Park Slope, and for that matter, Gowanus, Red Hook, and, and Borum Hill, the other neighborhoods adjacent to the canal, um, there are very few ways to cross the canal. There are only a few bridges. Most of them run in the same direction. Um, there's no way to um, walk along the canal right now uh, in a north-south direction. So we were really hoping that uh, we'd get a few solutions uh, or submissions like uh, BYOB that talked about ways to really sew those two sides together, to stitch them together, to make the canal uh, more of a, a, a feature that people could engage in and really experience. Um, George, I want to go back to your um, earlier question just for a moment about how we hope to get our voice heard. Mm -hmm. Gowanus by Design does a, a number of things, one of which is to reach out and offer our expertise as architects and, and uh, planners in transportation and cartography to the other community groups here in the neighborhood. So we work with other community groups here in the neighborhood on their proposals when they have questions, technical questions for the city government related to zoning or planning. That's one way, one form of outreach that we do. Uh, Dave and I also speak at local public schools. This competition we actually uh, opened up to a local middle school 
And in the exhibition at Set Gallery, we will have a couple of the winners from the the middle school solutions, you know, what those seventh grade students thought about the way that uh, the canal should be planned. Anthony Dean, thank you so much. Thank you. David Briggs, thank you. Thank you, George. Anthony Dean and David Briggs are the founders of Kiwanis by Design. Winners and selected entries from their recent ideas competition are on display through October 1st at the Set Gallery at 287 Third Avenue in Brooklyn. More info at KiwanisByDesign.com. Down by Kiwanis Canal, sit down by Kiwanis Canal. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. Chances are you're familiar with a creature from the Black Lagoon. But what about the beast from the Gowanus Canal? Author Jim Knipfel's latest novel, The Blow-Off, tells the tale of an alleged monster in Brooklyn. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show today. Your book, The Blow-Off, tells the story of a reporter who writes a crime blotter for a coupon penny saver in Brooklyn. He blames a mugging near the Gowanus Canal on a Bigfoot. The news spreads to other tabloids, and soon people are hysterical and taken to the streets to chase down the made-up Gowanus beast. What inspired you to write such a tale? Well, two things, actually. started in the late 90s. Stories started coming out of India. There was a small village where uh, a young woman uh, with scratches and bruises uh, told a local doctor that she had been attacked by what she called a monkey man, uh, a half-man, half-ape creature. And, uh, well, it being a small village, word spread very, very quickly. And uh, within a matter of days, the entire village had gone completely insane. Uh, there were mobs in the streets who were uh, attacking and killing people that they suspected the, were, was the monkey man. And people were running off their rooftops in terror. And eventually uh, the minister of health visited the town and conducted his own investigation and held a conference and, and told the people, he said, well, this is all just a case of mass hysteria. There is no monkey man. And everything stopped. It uh, just stopped dead. But then two weeks later, the same phenomenon popped up in another village a couple hundred miles away. And it ran its course there for two weeks. Uh, and then it popped up in a third village. And this would happen summer after summer. But what got my attention about this was the way it was reported in the uh, Western media whether it was the post or whether it was uh was NPR when the story was reported it was reported with um, well with a smugness uh, you know of a look at the look at these silly savages over there in their superstitious ways but the fact is uh, America has such a long and rich history of cases of mass hysteria that I began thinking you know, if you were to take this same phenomenon, something like the monkey man, and drop it into the middle of Brooklyn, the results would be 
I recalled Orson Welles' War of the Worlds while I was reading your book. Absolutely. That's a very good example. But even more recently, and uh, uh, here, in, here in New York, we had the, um, the ninja burglar on Staten Island, if you remember that, mm-hmm. from, a few, from a few years ago, where uh, someone reported seeing a man dressed like a ninja who was robbing their house, and he leapt out of a third-floor building and landed unharmed and ran away. And suddenly, over the course of a year, year and a half, everyone who was robbed on Staten Island, whether they saw the robber or not, had been robbed by the ninja burglar until the police came out and held a press conference. Ray Kelly came out and said, well, the ninja burglar has left town. And that stopped things for about a year. And then they started up again. And uh, it didn't last nearly as long until the police came out and said, well, the ninja burglar was actually a a group of Albanian gangsters, and they've all been deported. And that stopped things. So I'm waiting for for him to come back. I kind of like the ninja burglar. Why, Jim, did you associate your creature with the Gowanus Canal? Why not another (laughs) polluted New York City waterway like the Newtown Creek? Well, I used to live near the Gowanus, and I had a friend who lived near the who lived half a block off the Gowanus. And um, ever since I moved here, even before I knew what it was, even before I knew the story of the Gowanus, uh, I remember I had been in town for maybe this is twenty years ago. Uh, I had been in town for about a week, and I was walk, walking over the Gowanus. And uh, looked down, and I thought, "This is beautiful." You know, this is the, this is this is fascinating. And I bet if I were to drop a lit cigarette in, you know, off this bridge, and it hit that water, the whole place would go up. I've always been fascinated by just this grotesquely polluted waterway. In describing the area around the Gowanus Canal in the book, you write, everywhere and inescapable was the stink of death and industry. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, it's, it's, um, it's funny, during my the, that first trip across the Gowanus, I also happened to pass the old casket company, the old Brooklyn Casket Company. And I thought that kind of that kind of sums things up. I don't. I shouldn't. Have, I should have mentioned that in the book, but um, it's long gone. There are several references in the book to wild dogs wandering around the Gowanus Canal. Fact sure. or fiction? Oh no, absolute fact. Really? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, the friend I mentioned who used to live half a block away was uh, was attacked by a group of Gowanus dogs. But uh, yeah, they're they're down there. They're bad news. Lord knows what they get into. Your protagonist is Hank Calabander. Sounds like Salamander. He's a grumpy old man, quite frankly. Did anyone in particular inspire that character? Without pushing it too far, there are parts of uh, uh, Hank's character that I don't share, but uh, let's just say that he and I have had a lot of the same experiences. I used to write a crime blotter for a small weekly paper, uh, here in town, and worked uh, worked in an office much like that one, uh, where where Hank works, and um, I've dealt with editors much like Hank's editor. But again, don't want to push it too far because Hank is also a very open racist. Uh, 
which I am not. Hank has a friend of the book named Rocky, someone he knew from his days working at a carnival, someone you might expect to meet at the freak show on Coney Island, I would yeah. think. What drew you to write about carny folk? Carnivals and uh, carny folk have, have always worked their way into most of my books in one form or another because it's a it's a culture that's always fascinated me you know because that's where you find the true outsiders um i actually did try to get a get a job once with uh with a sideshow with traveling sideshow but uh that didn't work out as i was married at the time but um it's a it's a fascinating little self-contained world uh, where people speak their own language and conduct their lives in their own way. I mean, really outside, in in many ways outside the law. Not that they're necessarily doing anything wrong. They just create their own rules. The mayor in the book is a guy named William Wild Bill Rabane. You say that he has a trademark, weary, slow whine, the kind of voice that told you immediately he was simply no fun at parties. Now, Jim, I'm not naming names, but that sounds like a familiar voice in New York City. Um, well, in, 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 uh, I, all, all I'm going to say is that's, is that's what uh, Mayor William Wild Bill Rabane talks like and acts like <laughs> and that's all you're saying that's all i that's that's all i dare say he has more money than i do thank you so much for taking the time well thanks for having me on Jim Knipfel's The Blow-Off is published by Simon & Schuster. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Marlene Chin. Have a great weekend.